morning, Carl. Hi. I hope that uh, you are enjoying this snap of cold weather because... Uh, no, no, I didn't. I didn't enjoy it at all. I know. Well, um, it was keeping you busy, but now um, I'm, I'm sorry to say that you had to recover from an accident. But you're okay. You're one piece. You're... Yes. Without without getting into it, wear your seatbelt and airbags work. That. Yeah. Hi, Johnny. Hi. So so we have two acclaimed legends of the St. Louis radio here today with us. And with Hello. you, Carl, that makes yes, three. Three. Thank so you. I'm, a, I'm, I'm outnumbered, but I'm going <laughs> to enjoy stories because I, I do have a teeny, teeny, teeny bit of 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 a radio experience but um i got my fcc license operator card working in small market radio news back when you actually had reel to reel and we had to edit yeah and also we had the tracks for the commercials and that's what you had to do in the clicks and everything and (laughs) And then it was actually a two two radio uh, station deal. So the country station would be playing, and the rock, the pop forty would be playing at the same time. I was trying to write news. We actually did do news, real news back then, and we came on after Paul Harvey. So I'm really dating myself here, but that is yeah. my little story. But you guys have built name careers where you say your name and everybody knows who you are. So I would like you in this memory lane chat today because Ron and John Hewlett, Ron Stevens and John Hewlett are going to be at the Sheldon on leap day, also known as my son, Charlie's birthday. And he's going to be eight. I think really 35, 36. (laughs) But eight. So anyway, life, death, and other things. And other there's gonna be a show. Other scary things. Other scary things because scary, we've all had the life and the death stuff happen. <laughs> and and sometimes all at once, and sometimes during the past year or so. So um I would like to know how you got your start. What was your very first radio job? So you want to do you want John to answer that or do you want I Ron want everybody I want everybody to answer it. Oh okay. okay. Well, you had- go John. Go ahead, Ron. Go ahead, Ron. All right. Well, I, my first job in radio was in college radio. And to this day, I still love college radio. Casey was the fir- closest thing to it in that we could play whatever we wanted to play. And your mood dictated what you played. Uh, your musical taste and you know you from DJ to DJ you could tell the difference and college radio still has that which is at least most of them do so that's great it was at the University of Missouri in Columbia um gosh I can't even remember the call letters KCCS I think it was Carl what are you doing with your camera don't do that <laughs> I was looking for something that yeah right. down there right. yes uh what about you John where did you start well, I, my first job was at KEZK when they first signed on in 1974, in the fall of 1974. I was part of their first full-time air staff. And uh, I had gotten the job. I was at Broadcast Center, and I was also a senior at high school, in high school. And 
the guy who was putting the station on the air, the program director, was also an instructor at Broadcast Center, and he asked me if I wanted to be on the air on the weekends. And I said, wow, my first professional job. Yes, I'll definitely want to do that. And then for some reason, suddenly he comes to me and he goes, hey, we actually need somebody 7 to midnight, Monday through Saturday. Can you do that? And I said yes and had to get the approval of my parents and 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 the uh, principal at the school and uh, head of broadcast center. Everybody had to sign documents that if my grades went down, I'd lose my job. And thank goodness my grades didn't go down and I, I stayed there for a while. But that was my first job. And what were those grades at the time that they had to go down from? It was DeBerg, so it didn't matter. Uh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah, they stayed at sea level. That's That was it. <laughs> I want to add one thing to these two stories, and that is my first job was not on the air at KCCS, although I did some news stuff and I did uh, news gathering and whatever they would let me do. So I really technically showed up at KC with zero experience on-air experience in the radio, as did everyone who worked there until John Hewlett showed up in 1976. From, I would say, from 69 to 76, nobody had any experience. Before that, they were hiring old, uh, retired, uh, top 40 DJs like Prince Knight and uh, Dan Ron Dan, Els. O'Day or Danny, uh, what was his, Don O'Day, guys like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, Carl, was your I, first was, job, I, was, I was, I was there. I well, that was that. my first paid job, John. I would I did college radio for two oh. years at St. Louis University, KSLU. It went through the it went through the electrical system. It didn't. It it was barely broadcast. It was five thirty a.m., which is the farthest left you can get on the dial. <laughs> and you could get it. You can get it through your electrical outlets and on your TV because back <laughs> then the internet wasn't a thing for radio. But yeah. I was the music director there, and then I got an opportunity to work with John Hewlett in September of 1990. And I said, you know, I've been here for two years. It's time for me to get paid. And then I didn't get paid for another nine and a half months. Oh my god, <laughs> nine and a half months! I thought you were going to say years. No, well, how, did, how did that? How did that happen? Because it was an internship. I wasn't oh, getting paid. Oh, yeah, Carl, the intern. intern. Well, yeah. that's uh, that, uh, now that's illegal. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, there's nothing like college radio, though, as Ron said. Uh, my uh, son that majored in radio TV at Carbondale worked at the same station that Bob Odenkirk did. And that's their, he didn't graduate, but that's their claim to fame. But he didn't graduate because he went to Second City. And so, but they always go, Bob Odenkirk worked here. So when yeah, you guys true. started, was there a legend that you aspired to be? Like you thought, oh man, if I could be like this person. Well, for me, it was, it was Jack Buck. You know, uh, and, and, uh, you know, Jack was just the pinnacle of broadcasting in St. Louis. He, he was so smooth and confident and funny and entertaining. And then he did the Cardinals games as well, because he was also, a, a, I guess you could say, he wasn't a jock, but he, he was a radio personality on KMOX outside of the Cardinal games, too. And so he was my... Christmas with the Bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was my my inspiration. That's That's a good one. My, oh. my inspiration of all people was Ernie Kovacs from television. I wanted to be the Ernie Kovacs of radio. <laughs> and that, I mean, I just admired the way he took the uh, medium 
and played with it. And at the time, video was relatively, well, it was very new. And he learned to do things with cameras and lights and just tricks that you couldn't technically do yet, but he found ways to do it and make it funny. And that's what I wanted to do with radio. So that's why I was always tearing up the studio and, you know, wrecking things in there and just having fun. I thought that radio rock and roll was supposed to be fun, not so serious. So I took a, a, a lighter approach to it. When I started in college radio, I wanted to be I wanted to be an actor. I was still doing theater. And so college radio lets you besides play whatever you want. They let you do whatever you want. So I was doing all these bits and skits with everybody around and we throw them in. Once you got a request for something that you wrote and acted and produced, that is like that. Play that again. Oh, wow. They liked what I did. And so I wanted to be an actor, but radio, um, I, I always liked Casey Kasem, but I was always envious of the career that John Hewlett had because there was so much turmoil in John's early days and he stuck around. Every The one constant, the one constant, Ray, was John Hewlett. <laughs> well, radio by nature has is turmoil, you know? It, it's just so rare for somebody to stick around at the same station and that station maintains the same format for so many years. John's on year 48 now. It's just, I can't think of anyone else who's done that in the country. No, no, it might, it might be a record. I just remember how radio in St. Louis, uh, the first memories you have are mine were uh, the transistor radio before I went to bed, listening to KXOK. And that's the boomer standard for, you know, doing that. But also Jack Buck and Harry Carey at night listening to the Cardinal games. And that was the sounds of your summer. And then uh, I don't know if you guys did this, but the, the record stores would have the lists of the top hits every week. Yeah. And you grab that because you wanted to be, you know, part of yeah. what was what everybody was listening yeah. to and stuff. Yeah. And so St. Louis has those, to me, those intertwining memories. And then Heishi, Ron, you were not in the first batch, but you were part of the big influential batch. But how did Heishi come about on that little tiny space in Crestwood? What? I'm, by the way, I'm the one who replaced uh, Prince Knight. And Prince Knight was the end of that first batch that you're talking about. So I came in and replaced him. And it was in that little, what we used to call the popcorn stand from the Park 66 Drive-In Theater. It looked like it used to be the refreshment stand, but it wasn't. It was yeah. actually built for the purpose of being a radio station. But it's, it wasn't large enough to even uh, contain the supplies that we needed to run a radio station, much less the people. But I've always felt that that confined space really contributed to the uh, closeness that we all felt. We were like a family, a large family living in a little house. And we all were stepping over each other, bumping into each other. You couldn't avoid each other. If At, at one point, Jim Singer, who worked there when I did, uh, and uh, John Hewlett and Jim are still great friends. There's this, there's this link between the past and the present that just never ends. And uh, 
Jim got mad at me once. He was mad and he decided he wasn't going to talk to me. And he tried to not talk to me as long as he could. But every time we'd pass in the hallway, I mean, we had to touch each other to pass in the hallway. That hallway was so narrow. And then after a while, he just exploded. Says, oh, I can't do this anymore. All right, I'm talking to you now. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, when I first walked in that building, well, Ron offered me the job. And he said, just come on, come in and, you know, meet everybody and, you know, see what you think. And I went in there, I pulled up because I had never, you know, seen the radio station until that day. And I pulled up in the parking lot. And I went, what the hell is this? <laughs> I was coming from Jefferson City where I was working for an AM FM combination. And this that was opulent compared to in a small market compared to what Casey was when I when I walked in that building and initially my you know reaction was kind of negative like I'm not gonna work here and mm -hmm. then I started talking to Ron and, and he introduced me to different some of the people there and told me the story of the radio station and what life was like there every day and you know he sold me on it and I'm glad well, I, it was college radio all over a lot of college yeah. stations were stuck in a closet somewhere you know yeah, so it had that feel. Well, it was very counterculture too because it was FM and FM was brand new to St. Louis. Yeah, because the stations I talked to, Kicks, OK, and KMOX were AM. And so I, I just remember that transition like, ooh, FM radio. Yeah, it was um, a big deal. Like albums, they were playing yeah. albums and doing deep cuts. Yeah. Yeah, or, well, or full versions of the song and not sped up versions either. Once they made top 40, they had to get it to three or three and a half minutes. So they either edited it or they sped it up. Yeah, they wanted to get in more songs per hour and brag about it. Right. Well, the documentary, uh, Something in the Water, is so, such a, yeah, that, that is just so great. And that just uh, brings you all back. It tells you, about you guys' beginnings and uh, just it was intertwined with what was going on too in terms of like Mississippi River Festival was going on and you guys were a big part of that and uh, there's been nothing like it ever since. Yeah, Would you say yeah. that? No, I, well, I mean, the internet on a, in a different scale. I mean, the radio was, was the most powerful medium at that time in our lives. And it was kind of like what the internet has evolved to become. And it, now it is very powerful in terms of making music stars. Uh, you know, radio camp doesn't break, uh, you know, music stars anymore. But back then radio was so important. And, and uh, you know, these artists would come to us begging to be on the radio in, in some cases, you know, cause they were all, they weren't superstars back then. They were all trying to make their way. And so, yeah, FM radio was was very powerful right back then for the music business, for for musicians, for uh, you know everything. Yeah, about ten or fifteen years ago, a music teacher at Kennedy High School, when Kennedy High School still existed, asked me to come in and give a talk to his music class uh, and answer the question: Why was St. Louis so important to the music scene in the seventies? Number one, I figured these kids. They were, you know, seventh, I what, uh, eighth, ninth, tenth, no, ninth, tenth, eleventh grade, twelfth grade. They would have no interest in this. Turns out they had a lot of interest in it. I was very surprised at how much interest. But uh, we talked about not just Casey and how you know radio played a huge part, but guys like uh, 
Bob Heil out in Illinois, Marissa, Illinois, he had a music shop and he was making equipment that these musicians wanted. So often bands, especially European bands, if they yeah. would tour America, they would start in St. Louis so they could go to Bob Hiles and pick up some new equipment. Uh, same for the record stores. The record stores recognized this hub and what was happening here and the influence Casey had. So they put a heavier influence on the stores here and paid attention to what was selling here more than other markets. So it was a combination of all of these things. It, Radio was very important, but so were the record stores. So was the uh, the concert business. We had Irv Zuckerman and Steve Shankman with Contemporary Productions uh, starting at 18 and 19 years old, uh, producing local and regional concerts and quickly moving up into national shows, building that uh, um, amphitheater uh, out in... Riverport. Riverport, thank you. Yeah, and, Maryland uh, you know, all, all of these things added up to all eyes were on St. Louis for a long time. Yeah. But they could also, they it all could went also through radio, you know, it all went through radio. I mean, it could also level. work the other way. Elvis Costello, who's coming to the factory soon, was never mm -hmm. big here because Casey stopped playing Elvis Costello. And right. Elvis Costello was never huge as he was in the rest of the country because Casey stopped playing him because, uh, what, did he dedicate radio, radio to the radio station? Which is yeah, a he, yeah. radio. I found out that we weren't playing his album, and uh, and that pissed him off. Mm -hmm. See that, wow. that was he dissed on stage, and Casey, of course, heard about it. And yeah, that was that. Yeah, back then we would we would be uh, proud of our grudges. You know, if somebody <laughs> somebody dissed us, you know, it was like, well, okay, guess what? Here, we're not going to play your music, and. It, it had an effect on yeah interestingly casey didn't play that game very often didn't try to throw its weight around uh bully uh artists or our record labels casey had an amazingly good relationship with all the artists and record labels and because of that funky little uh building that we were in when rock stars came in from around the world they would come to casey because they knew about casey and they were shocked at what they saw when they would approach that building. They just couldn't believe it. But once they got in there, they fell in love with it. They saw the family that was in there running this thing and their expectations were met as far as what that station was. But they also remembered it because it was a shack. Yeah. How do you forget? That? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people remembered it because of that. You're right, Carl. And, well, and, sweet meat, and, and the pig on the T-shirt. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> sweet, sweet. Pig. Yeah. Oh, the. Uh the iconic photo of the Van Halen guys in front of the McDonald's oh, yeah. in Crestwood. That went around the world. That still goes around the world. Yeah, Ron's got a story on that. I produced a little five-minute documentary on that photo and tracked down the guy who took the picture. Richard Richard Upper is his name. And he lives in, on the West Coast. He's actually originally from Hawaii, but he had just moved to L.A., and Warner Brothers hired him to go on tour with uh, Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth to promote their first single, which was the uh, King's Cover. Cover. And um, they, when they came to St. Louis, it was winter. Those Neither of those kids had winter coats. They were, they were from the West Coast. So they bought those coats at an army surplus place nearby and uh, got their burgers. And the, Richard Upper took those photos. And uh, so I, I put this little doc together. And it's it's somewhere it says like three or four hundred thousand views now. I mean, it's really gotten a lot of views. And he called me up and said, "Ron, is there any way you can do another one on another one of my photos?" And I said, "Well, this one was quite a story. I'm not sure if you had, you know, uh, 
you need the story for it to work. He says, yeah, but I have sold so many of these. I used to sell a print for $550. I'm selling them for $850 now. And they're selling like hotcakes because mm. of that charm in that. And that's the same kind of charm that that Casey building had, you know, it was just something very real about it that people can relate to. And you can't manufacture it. You can't no. manufacture it on Instagram, you know, for a moment, for your moment. So when you guys were starting out, you know about the loyalty that St. Louis has, because I remember at the St. Louis Film Festival, we showed the note of something in the water and the, the showings were packed, packed. And everybody has waltzes down memory lane. And everybody, you you throw out a name, everybody has stories about that name. So why do you think the local community embraced what you guys had? Yeah. By the way, the, uh, the Casey documentary, Never Say Goodbye, which I produced, also showed at the film festival. That was also packed. And they told me that that was the only film festival showing they've had in the 20 years they've been doing it or whatever it is now, where everybody stayed afterwards for the Q&A. The audience, and it was standing room only for for the screening of it. Uh, but why why this happened has a lot to do with Shelley Grafman. You you just can't deny that that man who also had zero experience in radio, who who ran that station uh, before that, he was selling life insurance door to door. Uh, his brother owned the company, Century Broadcasting, and hired him to run the station, mostly as a sales manager. But he slowly became the general manager uh, and uh, for a while the program director. He personally hired everybody, not based on where they had worked before or what their voice sounded like. He hired them because he was a people person and he really thought about this ensemble that he was creating and how each person would work together and i mean miraculously he was right everyone there just naturally fell into the role that they wanted to do because he let them and he encouraged them he allowed them to do what they felt was right for the station and yeah. I, that that made a huge difference and, and he was taking a chance i mean you know we look back now with 2020 vision and uh seems like oh, it was a pretty easy decision to make to uh you know quit the insurance company, you got a family and everything like that, and go into this FM radio station that really wasn't making hardly any money back then. So yeah. it was a gamble on his part. He had no clue that you know what he was doing was going to evolve into what it became. And, but the fact that he had no clue uh, gave him the modesty he needed to allow us, who also didn't have a clue, to not dictate to us what we had to do. He, he let us know that that uh, all ideas were welcome. I was only there two weeks and I walked in his, in his office door and said, I have an idea. And as soon as I said, I have an idea, he put everything down. He, he, he pulled the phone away, put his pencil down, sat back and said, okay, tell me about it. Have a seat. So I said, I want to do this thing called a musical bizarre. And the idea is a local show with some local acts, but bizarre because one act would be a rock band, but the next one would be a honky-tonk piano and some bluegrass, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, all on one stage and one show. He goes, okay. I said, what do you mean, okay? He goes, okay, do it. It's your idea. Do it. What, what can I do to help you? How about, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll call up 7-Up and tell them you're going to do this. They're looking for something to sponsor, and we'll get them to sponsor so you don't have to worry about budget. And 
you know, find a hall and, and uh, you should have somebody from out of town for this just to give it some legitimacy. So I got the phone number of this guy up in Chicago who's got his first album out and he's looking for some promotion. His name is Billy Joel. So he says, call Billy, call Billy Joel up. I like his first album. It's on family records and it is a family label. Um, and uh, see if he'll be interested in coming in and doing it. So I called Billy Joel up, Mr. Joel. And he said, yeah, just have a tuned grand piano on stage for me, a mic stand with a mic, good mic and, and a piano stool. That's all I need. If you'll have that, I'll be there. And he wasn't even charging. He was coming because it was a promotional wow. thing. Two and now he's selling out Bush Stadium. And yeah. I have my tickets and they weren't cheap. <laughs> well, I never heard I never heard that story before, Ron. That's that's a great story. And it, it, you know, fast forward to 1976 a little bit from from the time period you're talking about. And mm -hmm. I'm standing out in front of the radio station there in Crestwood, and down comes the, the driveway, a, a green rambler, and pulls up in front of the station and out of out of the uh passenger's door get comes Billy Joel. And he had hitchhiked from downtown where he was staying because he was going to perform that night at the Ambassador Theater. He hitchhiked to KC Radio, and he probably knew about it. And, and, and you know, based on what, what you said, because of uh, his association with the radio station prior to that. So he knew it was a legitimate operation, and he, he came and he did an interview that day and did that show that night. Oh, yeah. And, and that, was, that was why all these rock stars would show up at KC, because earlier in their career, Shelley Grafman would be tuned into, you know, record labels saying, yeah, we're signing songs. When, oh, the first time I met Sammy Hagar, I was in the basement of uh, Wayne Meisenholder, who was with Capitol Records at the time, had a New Year's Eve party down in his basement, a small little bar they had down there, finished basement. Uh, he and Patty had a little boy at the time who was probably six months old, if he was that old, in a little uh, rocker kind of thing down there. And uh, I was there and some of the other jocks and I sit down at the bar and up comes this blonde with long hair sits down next to me and says, hi, I'm Sammy. I go, hi, Sammy. Uh, what do you do? He goes, I'm a musician. My name is Sammy Hagar. I goes, oh, Montrose. He goes, yeah. I said, well, what are you doing here? He goes, well, Wayne thought it might be a good idea because I'm breaking off from Montrose. And I'm going to do a solo thing. If I meet you guys, Wayne was smart. He, he knew that he was creating a personal relationship and that personal relationship, of course, Last through all these years, Sammy is is Casey, Casey is Sammy, you know. But that's that's what would happen. There would be these relationships that would be created early in their careers, and they had no problem coming back later. Alice Cooper, same thing. John plays golf with Alice Cooper years later, but he was when he was you know younger and just doing uh, eighteen, you know, things like that. His first album, he. Uh, he was dependent on Casey to sell tickets and he would come in and say, Hey, what can you guys do for me? Mm -hmm. Do you guys uh, remember a specific time at the station where something major happened and it changed the course of the day? I know nine 11 did for, for everybody, but uh, I remember the night John Lennon died and that was previous to 24 seven news. Yeah. And everybody heard Howard Cosell say it on Monday Night Football 
And then we immediately turned the radio station on and we listened to the radio station like as as long as we could that night because that was where you were getting the information. And that was where and they played Beatles songs all night and and mm. and everything was uh was there any other moments like that that you recall? Wow, something as powerful as that. I, I don't recall anything that dramatic. Um I mean, things that we did on the air uh, cause problems, uh, you know, occasionally. <laughs> uh, Carl, yeah, got something Carl in. Was I, was, I was in that room that day. Carl, Carl was in the room that, that, that morning. He's probably uh, the one pushing you I, to do it. Uh, no, the the weird thing about that, we were all very sluggish that morning up until that happened. We were all like, oh, we were dragging ass and and until like, uh, let's say around 7, 12, and then everything, then we were all awake. Well, yeah, but I remember also, Carl, and what we're referring to, Lynn, is, is uh, uh, we I put together a montage of old 60s um, audio pieces, and one of them at the end, uh, was a, a warning from an old 50s announcer going, warning, warning, the, the United States is under a nuclear attack. This is not a test. And then it was a fake explosion and pots and pans and debris hitting the ground. And, you know, there was enough elements in there, you know, I thought anyway, that you know, you, this is not real. Um, and we played it in between two songs. I think we came out of, came out of it with Ted Nugent's Cat Scratch Fever. And, and the, it was either that we played on one side of it was stings all this time. So I don't know if we went into or out of sting. One was Nugent and one was sting. So I don't, it's bricks to feathers. So it was probably Nugent into sting. Yeah. 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 Probably. You're probably right, Carl. And, and so, um, yeah. Uh, and we started taking a few phone calls and some people called and they were upset about it, you know, and, and then we got, it was over. Well, we got a call from, uh, Channel Four from uh, Russ Mitchell, who was their reporter at the time, and Russ went on to, you know, be a stalwart at CBS News for a long time. Uh, he came to talk about it, and you know, I told him what happened. And I think if I would not have given him a copy of the tape, that thing would have blown over. But I gave him a copy of the tape. He took the worst part of that element and put that in the news and just hammered that thing on the news. And then, of course, Channel Five picked up on it. Channel Two picked up on it. I got home from work that day and it was for the evening news. And I just happened to have the TV on, not thinking that this thing really was going to be that big of a deal. And when I saw his report, I suddenly, I just kind of sank down in my chair and I realized, uh Oh, this is not good. And it was, it was the video of the cassette tape moving in slow motion. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was, a, right. it was an extreme close up of a Morantz tape deck and the video the spool was just spinning and you hearing that i'm like wow they made this look as dramatic as possible and Lord. it wasn't that big a deal no it, it really wasn't but you know it uh, it evolved that what made it another, a big deal further was that the, the cardinals fired me from the pa job and that had nothing you know that was this was in the middle of january it was, as a matter of fact the anniversary is coming up january 29th i think it is and and uh you know, nobody was thinking baseball at that time, but Bob Hyland, who ran KMOX Radio, of course, saw an opportunity to get the KC DJ out of the, out of the ballpark. So he called his buddy Fred Kuhlman, who was running the Cardinals at the time, and said, uh, "Hey, did you see what this guy did on the radio? I think you need to get rid of him." And Fred Kuhlman said, "Yeah, good idea." And so that's how I got fired from the Cardinals over that. Thing. Mike Kelly. 
Yeah, Mike Kelly uh, took over and he did it for two years. Actually, in the second year that he was doing it, I filled in for like five or six games. So I don't count that as one of my years. But um, uh, yeah, this coming season is going to be my 40th full season as the Cardinals PA announcer. Wow. Which is also amazing. I got that job back thanks to August Bush the fourth. And what, what happened was um, he grew up listening to Casey and he liked the show that Corcoran and I did together. And I was at a bar doing a radio station function. Anheuser-Busch was sponsoring it. We were at uh, Bar O in uh, Chase Park Plaza and we're drinking and, and he comes in and he and I start talking and we're, we're drinking and Fred Kuhlman had just left the Cardinals uh, as the, as the uh, general manager or the president of, of the Cardinals and, and uh, a different guy was put in from the brewery and August said, Hey, uh, we want that job back after I told him what happened. He said, you want that job back? I said, I'd love to have that job back. He says, well, my guy's in there now and uh, I'm going to get you that job back. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, I got a call from Marty Hendon. He says, Hey, uh, why don't you come on down? Let's talk about you coming back. And that was that. If I wouldn't have been there that, that night in the bar, I, I probably wouldn't have gotten Rehired. See what drinking can do for you, John. <laughs> yes. right. well, and our event is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. Speaking of Anheuser Busch, that's right. They they are the official sponsor of Life, Death, and Other Scary Things at the Sheldon Theater on February 29th. Michelob Ultra. Yeah, two point oh. six carbs and only Casey ninety five calories. Uh, right, and, and well, it's the official beer of St. Louis City. Oh, you know, uh, in order to get the deal. John had to agree to drink a beer on stage, so this may be the first time most people ever see him drink. <laughs> I'm gonna need a couple of. I'm gonna need a couple of them that night. I, I really that wasn't that that they weren't saying that. Uh, Greg, Greg, our our co-producer, and I were saying you got to drink a beer on stage. Oh yeah. And John actually suggested the idea just to be you, totally candid and honest about it. Uh, uh, Greg Bush actually just called me five minutes ago. He did. He's like, I'm, he, you were right. You said you, you were going to sick him on me. He just called me five minutes ago and I'm texting him saying, I'm on with Ron and John right now. He's like, oh, Ron just wanted me to hound you. And I said, well, he already did. Well, my mother worked at Anheuser-Busch for 25 years and she loved working there so much. And uh, I just, I would just be like, if I ordered something else, she'd be turning over in her grave <laughs> you know it's yeah. just like you just can't like hardly do it you know you're like well that's you know. one of the reasons they got involved because this is a local thing and um you know they've kind of had a uh as, as they put it kind of a difficult year this past year and uh you know they i think they want to you know kind of reconnect with uh, the local folks here in st louis and this is kind of a part of that whole scenario right. and and, yeah, and, you know, the thing with, with the whole Bud Light and all that kind of stuff, you know, I mean, as a proud St. Louisan, and, you know, there's so many St. Louisans who have a connection, family connection like yours, Lynn, to Anheuser-Busch, to see the, the that brand struggle like that and get treated the way it was treated, it was just, to me, it was just ridiculous, you know? And so I'm glad to be a part of any kind of uh, uh, reconnection of Anheuser-Busch is having with the local community here in St. Louis with this event. I don't think there's any other corporation that size that has that special connection with the community yeah. as well as they do. So, yeah, uh, I agree with you, John. Oh, yeah. Well, once you hear Here Comes the King, I always uh, uh, 
tape the opening day, record the opening day, because I used to go all the time to opening day, but I don't anymore. And I have to, I have to, you know, I have to start, I have to see the red jackets. I have to see yeah. the yeah. Clydesdales. I have to see everything. And you just get teary. I, to me, you just get, because it's so much of a part of St. Louis and so much a part of, of our, so I don't know how you would turn your back on that. There's a lot about cancel culture that I don't understand. John, what time do you get there for opening day? Because I know you get there early because for hockey, I have to get there at three o'clock for a seven o'clock game. I know baseball, you get there early, but what time do you get there for opening day? Well, opening day usually starts at 310. And so I, I, I'm there about one, you know, one, one fifteen, something like that. I mean, for me, everything's scripted out. I mean, I, I it's. Well, I mean, when you got 50,000 people staring at you the whole time, you're down on the field doing something like that. You kind of you feel under the pressure, you feel under, under the gun a little bit. But for me, it's uh, it's pretty much set up. I just need to show up and deliver the material, you know, and, you know. Yeah. What's that day mean to you? What's that day mean to you? Because it is a, it is such a special day to me. It's like a holiday. Yeah, it means a lot to me, especially when I ended up taking over the the opening day ceremonies on the field, because that's what Jack Buck used to do. And to to have him be the my idol and the, and the person who made me want to get into radio. So now I'm doing something that he did really is every every opening day. I mean, I get emotional thinking about it. Well, John, speaking of Jack Buck, uh, I was talking to Tom Ackerman the other day and he came away sports director and he says the one piece of advice that Jack Buck gave him is the same piece of advice Jack Buck gave you. And that advice is, John? Never run to a microphone. And that's it. And <laughs> I tell everybody that all the time. Never run to a microphone. It's better to have a little bit of dead air than to be doing this for <laughs> two minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then there were a couple when I first got the job there in '83, and in, and in preseason uh, during the season of '84, um, Jack would interview people who worked at the radio at, at the stadium, and so he would pull me in, and I'd I'd do the uh, pregame show with him uh, a couple times. I I have the cassette tapes of those, Ron. By the way, yes, let's get dig them out, dig them out yeah, for sure. And, and I was so nervous that first of all, I was talking to Jack Buck, and I was on the mighty KMOX. And, oh, my God, you can hear it in my voice. And my answers to his questions were so stupid. So, uh, <laughs> but, he, but he smoothed it over. He smoothed everything over. And he, he made it, uh, he made it okay. That's nice. So has there any, been anybody that when you're working the radio station and you meet somebody, is there anybody who's, well, where you were in such an awe, you know, in, in awe of, or are you got so flustered or, uh, you know, you just had a reaction because you just admired this person so much. Did anybody knock you off your game? You guys, anybody? Yeah. When you met him? Um, yeah. I mean, this knock, knock me off my game. I mean, um, I was involved in a, in a gang interview of Paul McCartney on the phone uh, with, with, uh, with JC Corcoran and uh, who else might've been on that, Carl, you were, you were there. I I was the one that I actually got to talk to Paul when I was li when lining up you and JC. So I yeah. got to talk to him for like two seconds. I'm like, oh, I yeah. just talked to Paul McCartney. But I put him, you guys were broadcasting at the stadium and he yeah. was driving down to the venue. Right, right, right. 
And uh, so I, I asked him something about, uh, you know, how it feels to be on stage doing all these great old Beatles classics or whatever to tell us how that feels. And, and he said, I don't know about you, but I don't live in the past like you do. Ooh. And Ooh. yeah. And I'm like, Whoa. Uh, so, so he was joking. Was he? I couldn't tell him my end. I, thought, I think I, he, I, he, he's, he's making money off of the past, John. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know. It, it came across to me like I was being reprimanded by and it. This could have been during the time that Michael Jackson owned all his music. Oh, maybe. Maybe so. And I got to also interview Ringo Starr on the phone, too. That was just a couple of years ago, as a matter of fact. And uh, that that was, I was nervous about that one, too. Talking to a, a Beatle, man. Peace well, and love. Peace and love. I interviewed Paul McCartney in person. Sorry, guys. But wow. You and Favaz. You and Favaz did it. I yeah. guarantee you, though, that mine was extremely embarrassing. I was in Kansas City to see the show, and after oh. with things, and after the show, someone said, "Hey, Ron, you want to go backstage and meet Paul and Linda?" I said, "Yeah, let me think about it." Okay, so we go back there, and somebody hands me a cassette recorder and pushes me into them. Says, "Go ahead and interview them." That's how much time I had to prep. To oh interview man! Paul yeah, and they're sitting there in these little king and queen chairs, like Santa Claus and his elf helper. And I have to, you know, I'm, I'm pushed in front of them holding this cassette thing, which is already running because they hit it, run and gave it to me, you know, record, gave it to me. So the questions just, it was more like just meeting them on the street kind of things. Hey, how are you guys doing? Are you tired after the show? That was, a, man, that was a long show, wasn't it? Uh, so let's, you want to talk about, you don't want to talk about the Beatles? Okay. So, you know, that kind of stuff. There was really, yeah. it was nothing in there worth using. I should have used it comedically on the air. I did also interview uh, John Lennon, but in the same way you guys did, was I was on with a uh, group of other program directors actually around the country. There was like eight of us on the phone with John Lennon when he after his crazy weekend and he came yeah. back, you know, finally getting his shit together kind of thing. And he was very gracious and very nice, but it was difficult to really, you know, you didn't even really get a follow up question because as soon as yeah. your question was answered, boom, someone else was there with another question. Yeah, yeah. I had one of those with Tiger Woods and yeah, those never go that well, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah I, they don't, they don't that, go as well as you think they're going to go because no, so you would think that a, that a, that a publicist would know better, you know, but they're just trying to make the client happy. Well, Lynn, it's like what you do when you go on these junkets for Netflix, you, you had what, two seconds with Bradley Cooper and that was it. Yeah. Well, actually we had a little bit more time, but it was a group thing. So it wasn't one on one, you know, right. like yeah. uh, back in the day, people don't come around like because now St. Louis has fallen off the top 20. So we used to get these, you know, opportunities. And when I was working, uh, when I was doing these features for the and reviewing for the Belleville News Democrat, I would get 20 minutes and that the publicist would be in the room and they'd be time and they'd be on their, you know, and they'd be like, you have 20 minutes with Marlon Wayans and, you know, things like that. But, you know, the, pub the publicist, when we do radio, the publicist calls the other line and says, you need to wrap this up now. It happens all no matter if you if they say it's 15 yeah. minutes, it's 15 minutes. Yeah. And even if and the talent doesn't even know they're like they're involved answering a question. They're like, you got to wrap it up. I'm like, he's not done talking. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. It makes you look rude because you're. You're suddenly right. cutting them off. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. Go. 
<laughs> well, the the uh, reality TV stars that you get to interview nowadays on the, the phone, they have somebody else on there making sure that you're not asking them anything that they are Spoilery. not supposed to answer. So they're on there with you, you know, and checking out well, what you're asking. You know, as, as, as people, people who, who are in the media, I mean, the whole con that whole concept of not allowing the person you're talking to to say certain things and to monitor what they're saying. I mean, it, it, it's kind of like the KGB, you know, I mean, the, the <laughs> media has gotten I mean, yeah. PR firms or whatever have gotten so control now of what we're, we have access to and what the, the people we're talking to say that it's just become so uh, boring for, in, in a lot of cases, you know, um, yeah. I don't know. It, it kinda, they've they've yeah, signed NDAs, John. They'll lose money if they say something that spoils the show for the next week. Yeah, well, maybe don't do the media break then. <laughs> well, remember the days when like Joe Pollack would be on Channel 5, I think it was, and he would be given out reviews and stuff. Now it's all influencers. And I was watching, I'm not going to name the show, but I was watching a couple local uh, young people talking about the color purple, the movie. Oh, it sounds so fun. Color purple is not fun. Yeah. And they were like, Chit, 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 you know, like this happy talk about, oh, it's going to be so, you know, and, and it was just like, and everything's great and everything's amazing and everything's wonderful. And I'm just like, snails. It on a, a it's a very difficult story to tell. And it's, it's weird that it is a musical because it is so serious in tone. Well, yeah. but we, I know we sound like old people going, oh, these young people nowadays. No, hey, I dragged never. John Hewlett to his first musical in how many years, John? Since what, high school? I dragged yeah. John to Jesus Christ Superstar because he loves the album. That's and amazing. was it as horrible as you thought, John? Uh, I got through it. Uh, it was well. You were you were buying me drinks, and well, it, <laughs> I said, don't. I said, don't think of it as a play. Think of it as a concert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. Yeah, I, I love the album. I love that music from that album. So it, it was tolerable. But as but far as music goes, we, I can't before, go to. Before we wander off this conversation yeah. about the media and publicists and interviews, this is really the, the main reason I wanted to do Life, Death, and Other Scary Things. I, and John Hewlett is a perfect example of what I have witnessed over the last uh, month and John doing several media interviews, as you would expect, he's often asked all the same questions. This is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast, because I know you guys wouldn't let that happen. But the show, Life, Death, and Other Scary Things, is the opportunity for a celebrity to sit on stage and not be interviewed as much as carry on a conversation that goes much deeper than those expected questions. The stories that we're talking about now are the kinds of things that they're expecting, but a lot of them have been told before in stories from the window through the Casey series. So what we want to do is go beyond that and go deeper and have a serious conversation, but at the same time, it's still rock and roll, have a lot of fun with it, which is why we invited Carl Middleman to be on the show too, because we need comic relief. There will be a lot of bells and whistles. There'll be a lot of surprise. Lynn's laughing already. <laughs> <laughs> wait wait well, till I, wait till you see what i send you today i i look forward to it so uh so there will be a lot of celebrity guests surprise guests there will be a video uh we took a camera crew to the house where john grew up on 18th street in lafayette square 
spent a day there uh, and he show he took us to the place where he saw a guy murdered shot in the face uh somebody he knew and there there are some stories that we wouldn't get in stories from the window so we're going to go well beyond that on life death and other scary things yeah so john that is now we you know two people that got shot in the face <laughs> oh jeez you got to be kidding me because our remember our our former national sales director also yeah. got shot in the face, Marvin Sanders. Yeah, who is who's now at Channel Nine, and he's now kind of one of the voices of Channel Nine. You're watching KETC Nine St. Louis. I'm like that's Marvin. Are you kidding me? I yes. had no idea. Yeah, Marvin yeah. Got, he got shot in the mouth, and the bullet somehow hit one of his molars back there, and he ended up spitting the bullet out. I mean, he didn't, wow. he didn't know he didn't. They were they were trying to steal his bike and yeah. he got shot in the face. And because it hit him, it was a small caliber yeah. and it it hit one of his teeth and he lived. Yeah, oh that's incredible. That oh is an amazing story. Can we well, get him? I there? was, <laughs> I, I was well, gonna... the Nine, channel nine's right next to the Sheldon. Okay, so I was going to uh, say that. In my my brief experience in working halls of a radio station, there are a lot of characters in radio, and yeah. uh, when people would uh, watch WKRP in Cincinnati, and Ron wrote a couple episodes, but I was I would always say it's more documentary than comedy, mm-hmm. and and those those ad guys are just like Herb. And and every you know, and you guys know know the characters because you were in the biz for so long. But are you going to talk about any influences in your life, like the people that that you met along the way? Is that going to come up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, we're preparing this like you prepare a morning show, Carl. I know you can identify with this. You you know where you're going to go in that show. You just don't know how you're going to get there. Right. So, I'd imagine that most of what you prepare will be thrown out in the first 10 minutes. You're right about that. Yeah. <laughs> the, only, the only guidelines we'll have is, you know, the videos and photos that are scheduled to go show up on the screen at a certain time. You're scheduled to be on stage at a certain time. We don't know what you're going to say. We don't know how we can react to it because you haven't said it yet. And we we don't I don't know how John will respond to some of these photos that I have that I know he's never seen. And some of them, he's going to, his draw's going to, jaw's going to drop. Now, really? And some of them, he, his children will be there to see this as well. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I was looking at one this morning that you sent, Carl. And that's the first thing I thought of, oh my God, John's mom is going to see this. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when I, when I agreed to do it, I, I, yep. I, I said that, uh, you know, everything was, fair game so here we go your mom has seen a lot john she I, she's not going to be surprised well uh, i think I told, you... I told ron a story the other day on the phone that uh it can't be told at this <laughs> thing but uh and you can just tell the punchline the the bare footprints on the windshield of their car i know that story on inside on the inside of the car i know that story uh, <laughs> oh no did you guys ever, um, your children, I mean, radio to me is hard work, just like comedy is hard work, but people don't see the, you know, it's like a duck on the water. You don't see the peddling underneath, you know, you just see the smoothness 
And mm -hmm. in all your experiences, you know, you make it look easy. So it is it is really hard work, but you're prepared. You're, you're old school. You do the legwork. You do the uh, the things involved in setting up and, and not just like, oh, we're just going to wing it because no, no. You, you can't, you, you know, you can't do that. But I remember um, that people who think it's all glamorous and fun don't realize how much hard work it is. And when my son was working at the college radio station and he was looking for jobs, he would say to me, he goes, yeah, mom, this one station wants me to work weekends and whatever, but I know how hard you work and I know those hours and I just don't want to work those hours. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. Do your children ever say anything to you like, oh, no, I'm not going in that because it's too much work? Yeah, yeah. We hear this often with that generation, I guess it's. You know they 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 won awards for showing up, so they have all different. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but I do I do want to add this that this I mean I love I love taking on projects that are a long term, b very risky, and c scare the shit out of me. And this yeah. one beats all three of those. However, I have to say that I've never felt more comfortable and eager to do a show. Because I'm going to be sitting on stage with a guy I love, a guy I respect, I've been proud of, uh, watching his career and, and watching him grow. So I know it'll be easy and it'll be fun. At least John and I will have fun. Hopefully everyone else will. <laughs> Are you going to take Q&As? Are you going to do Q&As? Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to we're trying to figure out the best way to handle that because we we can't let the show drag when someone grabs a mic and every single one of them will say, John, I've listened to you since 1978 and blah, 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 you know, and, and you, you can't stop that. So do you remember that one time where you met me in the parking lot at Pops? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was my best night ever. And then you knocked out my sister. <laughs> Come on. You got to remember that. So um, we, uh, you know, I, I, I did a thing at the uh, History Museum once where I created uh, using an app. I, I modified an app uh, so that people in the audience could just open it up. You know, it was online and just it was like an online questionnaire form, you know, and they could ask a question is go to the go to this website, ask the question. It will immediately be emailed to me. I'll see the question on stage so we could do that. Uh, I am already gathering questions from people who bought tickets saying, hey, if you'd like to ask John a question, tell me what it is now and I'll try to get it in. So I have them that way, you know, so we'll yeah. definitely have some. Wouldn't it be wouldn't it be incredible if an illegitimate child came out of nowhere and showed up at the event that night? Wow. Would yes. You be, would you be surprised? Would you be at all surprised? Oh, I'd be surprised. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I love surprises. What what what's what what's what uh what if you recall something a fan told you that you were just blown away by, the fan came up to you and said something to you and you were just like, well, I mean the finishing the finish of a story uh, of a of a murder I witnessed is something that blew me away one time. I, I want to save that for the show. Yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah. You have to come. You have to buy a ticket to hear this story. Yeah. There is one. There is one that you that's not like that, not that kind of uh, impact. But uh, you did tell me that John Hamm told you something when you met him. Oh yeah, thank you, Ron. I'm going to need you to refresh my memory often on stage that night. Uh, we had uh, yeah John Hamm, um, also uh, uh, Andy Cohen, 
you know, when I'm on the field at Bush Stadium, we're doing a bunch of first pitches and sometimes celebrities come down and throw out those first pitches. And I've met so many over all these years. And yeah, John Hand was out there to throw out a first pitch. And I, I just want to introduce myself to him. And I do that to most people who come down there. And uh, I walked up to him. I said, hi, John. I'm John Hewlett. And I just want to say, uh, you know, good luck on your first pitch here. And welcome to the stadium. And he interrupted me. He said, hey, I grew up listening to you, dude. <laughs> and it just blew me away, you know. But but him and I know Andy, who you are, you man. And Andy, <laughs> Cohen, Andy Cohen said the same thing and cut a little promo for Casey, uh, you know, saying Casey 95, real rock radio. <laughs> and, you know, so a lot of these people who came from, from St. Louis who've gone on to do great things, they grew up like all the rest of St. Louis listening to Casey, you know, and listening to us and yeah. Learning about the music, you know. And they're yeah. great ambassadors. They're great ambassadors for the city. And they have those memories. I interviewed uh, Andy Cohen's mother for a story a long time ago. And and she was talking about what a hoot he was as a child. <laughs> yeah. And he's, she said, I would try to yell at him and he'd wink at me. He winked at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't. He's 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 real active with his own little kid on uh, Instagram now. And apparently, this little kid's entertaining. Yeah, it's it's really funny. Well, Jeff Tweedy, I got to tell a music story. Jeff Tweedy was on Colbert the other night because he's written his third book. And he, if you read his memoir, he is a good writer. His chapters on growing up in Belleville, I was just rolling, laughing. Really? reading them they were just so funny but he's written a book about the songs that influenced his life so look up the interview that he has with Colbert because it's hilarious because he talks about the songs that he doesn't like okay and he's like oh this this interview isn't going well well everybody Jeff was gasping in the audience and then but he does talk about one of the most memorable concerts and he said in St. Louis Missouri so he does reference, you know, that. But anyway, well, it's, it's a good John. Book. John introduced Wilco at Star Wars night, not because Wilco was a fan of Star Wars. It's the fact that they had an album called Star Wars that had nothing to do with Star Wars. And so John's met all those guys. Yeah, Jeff was at uh, another one of those guys down at the stadium on the field to throw out a first pitch. And I was kind of leery to say anything to him because we never played their music hardly at all when when they first split from uncle tupelo and you had the two you had you had wilco and you had sunvolt we both we played both of their first singles and then we're like and eh, now nah, that's point music <laughs> so we yeah, did yeah. we played like one song and yeah. that was it yeah well i remember uh um Steven Tyler came to, to the stadium and threw out a first pitch too. And, you know, Casey was so instrumental in helping Aerosmith become what they eventually became. And they'd come to St. Louis often and he knew Casey radio and, you know, we'd interview him many times. Well, he was on the field that day with the top 40 station. Uh, representing. It, it was the it, their only number one song. I don't want to miss a thing. Yeah from the Armageddon soundtrack and we were not playing it. We were not playing it. And he came down there and I, I introduced myself and I sent him from KC radio and he just kind of stopped and he went, Oh, like he, he realized, uh, sorry. 
Yeah, oh. sorry, guys. Uh, I'm screwing Casey over here by, uh, you know, touting this other radio station in your marketplace. But but it was a top 40 record. There was no reason for Casey to play that song. No, no, you're right. How many times do you guys get hounded for concert tickets? Oh, my God. Oh, Lynn, I believe you did it. Yes, you did it last week with Billy Joel. Yeah, I got it. I just inquired. I just inquired how who to contact. Uh Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew I I knew I wasn't going to get free tickets. I just wanted to know. Those days are over. Yeah, Yeah, those those I know those days are over. But and I never ask for that kind of stuff anyway i just would go but you know concert tickets on that level are such a pain you just kind of want to know if there's somebody to talk to so you can get early access but a friend of mine got early access through uh you know how all the credit cards have those special things in that and so she got in on the uh, the pre-sale earlier than the other pre-sale they had like three pre-sales so it's it's a thing to maneuver nowadays, this concert thing. But I bet you guys always got asked. And Ron, weren't you like, you would be like the MC at these big fests. What were they called in Forest Park, right? Oh, yeah, the uh, the kite flies, uh, the free concerts. But but you didn't need tickets for that. But, <laughs> but yeah. what, what's scary is I'm still asked if I can get free tickets for something. <laughs> People, I was asked today. If I could, you know, get tickets for something. Yeah. I haven't yeah. been at Casey in how many years? It doesn't yeah. seem. But you know people, don't you? Yeah, I do. That's a problem. I got to quit knowing <laughs> these people. Yeah. You know, Carl, the intern. And John, get, get, do you John, get, do you get asked for Cardinal tickets? And Carl, do you get asked for blues tickets? All the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's funny because of all the people I know, Carl's probably more likely to be able to get me tickets than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the well, tickets are always available to be had if you're willing to pay for them. Yeah. yeah. People just don't want to pay for them. That's right. right. <laughs> well, I mean, that, and that evolved out of the early days of, of Casey, too. I mean, we used to sell tickets out the out of the window there in the studio while the jock was doing an air shift, you know. Wow. And and so, you know, we, we, we had access back then. I mean, even those those of us who worked there. I remember I sat front row in that Billy Joel concert I referenced earlier this morning, right in front of his piano, you know, so, uh, you know, people kind of, we talked and we talk about that on the radio, you know, and so people are, oh, these guys got tickets out the ass, uh, you know, let's, let's hound them, you know, and, and then to this day that, that still exists. They think, oh, we got all kinds of tickets because, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Back in the day. Well, I remember the window because, uh, a group that I hung out with, uh, uh, stayed all this is when you would camp overnight for tickets for Rolling Stone and they got up to the window and it was all sold out and the window shut down the, oh, the remember we those days to, sure sure to have a, a line of people sitting on the sidewalk in front of the Casey door in the old building and that line would go all the way back up to Watson Road all the yeah. way up that street of people they set up tents and sleeping bags yeah, whenever there was show, sleeping there was bags. Fun. Yeah, I remember one very cold night too. Um, mm. They went down and and took apart the white fence, a wooden fence, between uh, the apartment complex and I guess the street or down there. And they mm. and they pulled the pet fence apart and they brought the wood up and threw the wood in the barrel and started this fire to keep <laughs> themselves warm. And yeah, the apartment complex uh, management was not happy about that. 
All right. So before before we close, uh, tell me something that uh, to like you guys are great promoters. So tell me something to promote your show. Well, I should people come. Joy in the morning is the opening act for this show. Woo-hoo! Yeah, and she's gonna surprise people. Um, <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting. She's always interesting. She's always funny and fun. Yeah. Uh, well, she's whole... a, well. The first time I met her, I got to tell her that my niece was named after her. Really, that's uh -huh. awesome. Your yeah. niece's name is Morning. Um, it is Joy, and and because her parents listened to Joy in the Morning, and they oh, thought that was a good name, so that's what I told her. I said my niece is named after you because how many people can say yeah. somebody but was John named after? Very, John and I are very fortunate to have the backing of professional. Um, promoters and producers uh the whole team putting the show together uh knows that uh john and i are putting our heart and soul into it and they're making sure that we're delivering an uh a1 top-notch entertaining show that will last a couple hours so uh, expect some fun and music as well and surprises doors at yeah. 6 30 what Doors are at 6.30 and tickets oh. are available at MetroTix.com. Yeah. Thank you. He's still a disc jockey. He's still got it. You got it, Carl. And this is Sheldon. Well, the Sheldon's a wonderful place to see uh, people at because the acoustics are so great. Yeah. They are. That's That, that was a concern to us because uh, it's not loud music, you know. I mean, there is there is music and there's a lot of production, but there's there are some, you know, some deep intimate conversation going on there we want to make sure that people up in the 18 dollars uh, seats can still hear you, you know you can in that place you can hear and you can see from everywhere there's not a bad seat in the house and tickets are as low as 1850 they go as high as 50 dollars. to my surprise the 50 dollars seats are almost all gone already so oh. and there's still 1850 tickets left for people who care about pricing yeah and if you like seeing grown a grown man cry uh, that could happen. That's because uh, you. There's going to be a line to kick John in the balls. Yeah, there could. There's going to be something <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, I could lose control of my bodily functions. I mean, anything's possible. I would tell you that in you know, in having conversations with John to to get you know to know as much as I can before we get up there, uh, that he is a, a very emotional person, and I think this is part of why he's so private when he's away from that microphone, his life has been very private. He, he loves his family. He, he uh, has a very rich history uh, family wise. And we'll, we'll learn about that. And uh, it, it is difficult to listen to it without breaking out in a couple of tears. Well, I recall listening to you guys in the morning and Carl and, and John, you would all say what you did over the weekend. <laughs> that was always fun. Yeah, Monday know, and so I probably know more about what you guys did than, than you know I did. But is Carl the first person you think of when you have a music question? No. Oh, oh, Carl is definitely uh, one of the greats of uh, music trivia and entertainment I, trivia. Period. I remember stupid oh. stuff. Yeah. Oh, and, and, when you and, go and, see a movie, when you go see a movie with Carl at a screening, and there's a song. <laughs> That is not in the right year. If yeah. it this movie made... is supposed to take place in 1974, and that song didn't come out till 1980. What? Who? <laughs> you would yeah. think someone would pay attention to that stuff? Yeah, you you think I, that? But I Carl, always thought, Carl knows. 
I always thought it was funny on Monday mornings when you did that thing where you talked about what you did over the weekend that uh, John would always say something like, well, you know, I played golf and, uh, uh, you know, had. And then I went to a, a girls volleyball game. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and Carl would say he saw this movie, he saw that movie. And then Learn would go, well, first on Friday night, I did this. And then then, then later after that, I would go to this party. And then Saturday morning, we had this uh, get together. Then Saturday. And it was like 10 minutes later, she's through <laughs> her weekend. And, and Carl and John are like, well, uh, OK, that sounds like you had fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, it was. It was kind of a silly feature, a self-serving feature. But yes. that's what the internet is all about. I mean, that's what people are doing, becoming tr tremendously yeah. successful influencers, just talking about their lives like that. Uh, you exactly. know, so yeah. we weren't that far off in terms of it being somewhat, at least, somewhat applicable to what we were trying to. Ahead of the curve, John. I think that's yeah. what we were, and oh, now we're behind it. <laughs> I think I think you guys I think you guys are still influencers for a certain generation. Maybe maybe we got to do better at that. You know, maybe that's something well, that's Ron. Ron, that's something we should we should undertake. Yeah. Well, but, we just don't live out loud. Um, no, like we that. don't, and we weren't taught to live out loud like that. You know, we we're taught to be quiet keep and keep that stuff private. No yeah, one needs to know about private. everything you did. Right now they get on. They tell they tell how much money they make. Uh, you know, uh, everybody they you know had relations with. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, crazy. Uh -huh. You think I'm not going to ask these questions on stage? <laughs> well, yeah, Ron's just going to open up somebody's TikTok and just do the same things that they're doing. <laughs> you guys will have a viral moment. Uh, yeah. Uh oh, yeah. Oh, now, Ron, is it going to be filmed? Yes, we have a camera crew showing up. So, uh, oh, we do. Okay, I didn't know. I that. think you have a lot of connections. Not sure. Yeah, not sure what we're going to do with it yet, but we will have it. So. Well, that's cool, though. But, but I also, do. Ron is doing this. This is just the first um, in a series. I, I, the way I get it from Ron. Well, uh, these type yes. of events. Yes, and yeah, um, not not first in the series for me. Um, I agreed to do the first one, which is why I wanted John. Uh, but the 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 company wants to take it to a national level with the Sammy Hagars of the world. Uh, I've always preached to to uh, concert promoters that there's more to do on stage than just put loud bands up there. There's a lot more that can be done uh, in in their world. And uh, guys like Steve Lipman have have uh, experimented with some really bold ideas and he's done well with them. He's put book authors on stage in uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle. He had me do the uh, promotional videos for him and uh, he did well with those. Uh, and uh, there are, there are a lot of spoken word things like board teachers, you know, that, but that goes in the comedy world. Uh, whose line is it anyway? Whose live is it anyway? It's called yep. on stage. Uh, that's spoken word. Um, but it's still entertainment and the audience will re respond to that. And uh, it's hard not for me to recognize the audience that Casey demands uh, that really has held Casey up for so many years. It's a community. It's a subculture, as 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 uh, uh, Lynn pointed out. And it is it's a it's a counterculture, uh, you know, that's there that's still there and still strong. Uh, and that's where John is still an influencer, and that's why this show is almost sold out. I mean, it's it's doing very well, and I, I won't, I will be disappointed if it's not sold out because uh, it's on track to do that. 
what about but I don't I don't plan on that to finish the answer to the question. I'm sorry, Len. I don't plan on continuing to do these. I'm oh. I'm gonna be 75 the night I step on that stage. Five days earlier, I'll be 75. So, but I think it's a good idea. And I'd like to see the the trend continue. Carl, you might be the next host. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I like that it's not gonna be a roast. I think that's good. Oh, because, oh no, 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 no. That we're still gonna shit talk John all night. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why Carl's yeah, gonna that, be that's still gonna happen, but, but basically I asked a lot of his old workmates. I said, would you, you know, there's something you'd like to tell John. You haven't really had a chance to tell him an opportunity to tell him. I'll give you five minutes on this stage in front of this audience to say whatever you want to him. Mark Close bargained for four hours, but uh, he had to settle for five minutes. Uh, and yeah, so there are, there are many who will be walking on that stage that night and roasting the shit out of him. I will be bringing the corn and the sunflower seeds, John. <laughs> hey, hey! What Carl, what Carl sent uh, the day I stepped out of the morning show, yeah, with his character Vinny Testosterone, just had me rolling, crying, rolling. I was laughing so hard at that. Um, that was fun. That was great. Uh, so maybe bring a little bit of that. Maybe, maybe he should show up. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Come yeah, on. no, he better be there. I'll be disappointed. <laughs> Don the Legend's gonna Don Legend's gonna try to come. Oh. All the way from Mexico, Missouri. Yeah, I talked to his son the other day, so we might have to bring him up there too, Ronnie. Oh, that would be great. Right. Good idea. Let's talk about that. Legit. All right. So let's go to metrotex.com, search life, death, and other scary things. It's at the Sheldon. It is on February 29th, 2024. John Hewlett and Ron Stevens on stage. You think you know you him? Probably forget. Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you think you know him. You love them. Pay attention. <laughs> and as Ron said, tickets are less than 20 bucks, so you have no excuse. What the oh. hell else are you going to do on a leap day? That's right. Yeah, it's a day you wouldn't have had. There's 24 hours there you wouldn't have had, so you can't walk away and say, well, I'll never get those four hours back. You got 20 more you haven't even touched. <laughs> yep, yep. And you're going to sleep for at least eight of them. Yeah, Lynn, thanks for having us today. Uh, you're, well, you're thank very, you. You're a very accomplished person in your own right, and we appreciate you giving us time today. Well, thank you. I enjoy it. You know, it's fun to walk down that memory lane because that's our favorite street. <laughs> oh, I'm well, it's always that. fun seeing you guys. All right. Thank you. Bye, thank everybody. Thank you so much. Bye. Carl Bye. and I will be back normal. I guess, well, we're never normal, but no. <laughs> next week. We'll have to watch the movies back, or back something. Back to the shorter show. <laughs> No, it's about this long every week. I did. Well, it's very entertaining and take care. And you've meant so much to so many people. It's really an honor to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Bye bye.